Hey there. Welcome to Coffee with the Docs. We are a holistic lifestyle podcast where we give integrative solutions and bring brilliant experts to help you thrive, mind, body, and spirit. We are doctors Nicole Huffman and Abby Kramer, and we're so happy you're here. Hey guys, welcome back to the podcast. Um, Today's episode is so full of amazing information. We were so lucky to have Lily Nichols on and talk all about prenatal and postpartum nutrition. Yeah, we were really excited about having her. She's one of those that when she said yes, we were like, oh my gosh, this is so great because we love her books. We love her information. One of the things we really like about the information that she provides, it's all really research-based and she really challenges the guidelines, which um, most of us in uh, more functional medicine or uh, holistic medicine don't really agree with a lot of the guidelines anyway. So it's really (laughs) nice when somebody is challenging them and putting out information that we really stand behind and it's research-based and backed by science. And so it just it's awesome. And it was great to be able to have her share on our platform. Well, and I just love how like, she's literally done the work for everyone. Like, even as much as I love science and being up on the latest and greatest, people don't understand how many hours and hours and hours it takes to comb through research articles to like, even figure out what they're saying, let alone like the validity and how good the research is and is it good science, et cetera. And she's just done all of that and broken down like from a macro micronutrient standpoint, exactly what you need to have a healthy pregnancy. And it's really cool. So I recommend her stuff to my patients all the time. Yeah, absolutely. So we know you guys will love it. And as always, thank you for listening. Thank you for your support. And if this episode, if you like it, please feel free to share it with anybody you know who is going through pregnancy or wanting to get pregnant soon because so much of preconception work starts months and months before you even conceive your child. So, And then also please feel free to leave us a review. We love that. Yes, please. All right, guys, enjoy. All right. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Coffee with the Docs. We are really, really excited today. We have uh, Lily Nichols today, and we've both been a huge fan of her work for a really long time. Um, Love her first book, and we'll get to talk about all of that stuff. So Lily, thank you so much for being on today. Thank you for the invite. Yeah. So we're going to start first by just having you intro yourself to our audience. Sure. So I am a prenatal focused dietitian and certified diabetes educator by trade. And my work really focuses on providing mothers and also I would say fathers to be as well. (laughs) If you (laughs) want to go all the way back to preconception with the information around optimizing their nutrition. So you can have a healthier, less complicated pregnancy, um, an easier birth and easier postpartum recovery and, and all that. 
Awesome. Thank you. And to start out, we always ask our first two guests the same two questions. And so the first question is, what are you currently drinking or what's your current drink of choice? Hence our podcast name, Coffee with the Docs. And the second question is, what is your latest biohack? Okay. Well, I currently have a cup of black tea with cream. I am not a coffee drinker. I just, it's something that doesn't work well with my body, although I do have coffee every once in a while when I really need it. Mm -hmm. um, my latest biohack, I don't know if I really have a, <laughs> any <laughs> biohacks right now. Um, honestly, for me, it's, it's um, the world is kind of upside down right now. So getting outside and getting in the sun and grounding myself, you know, like yeah. on the earth. I don't know if that's really a biohack, but that is something that I'm leaning into more these days to just, yeah, stay more grounded, like literally and figuratively. <laughs> yeah, that's totally a biohack. That's great. Yeah, it's actually been a lot of our guests' biohack has been yeah. like being in the sun. It's really yeah. interesting. Yeah. And it's probably just because 2020 has been sort of different, right? So people are like, I just like the sun and being outside. So yeah, yeah that definitely works. So how did you get into the world of nutrition, like more specifically with the prenatal and postpartum nutrition? Yeah. So I, I've been interested in nutrition for my whole life. So I, I knew by like by mid high school that I was going to be studying nutrition and everybody says, Oh, you'll change your major. You'll do something else. And, and I didn't. So um, it's been sort of a, a lifelong interest of mine. And in terms of the, prenatal side of things, I got into that more after I'd become a registered dietitian. Uh, I had the opportunity to work with the California Diabetes and Pregnancy Program, which primarily focuses on gestational diabetes, but managing all types of diabetes throughout pregnancy. And, you know, early in my career, I had been really interested in trying to fix like the childhood epidemic of diseases, especially obesity and diabetes. And like, oh my gosh, we need to reform the school lunch program. And we need to do, you know, all these things, policy changes to make, you know, get these kids healthier food. It was really how I thought we would address that issue. And when I was working with the um, diabetes and pregnancy program, I learned that a mother's blood sugar levels during pregnancy can like pre-program a baby to face a higher risk of diabetes and obesity later in life. So if a mother has poorly controlled blood sugar in pregnancy, uh, some statistics estimate it's a six-fold higher risk of type 2 diabetes or obesity by the time the kid is 13. And oh. there is um, some other data suggesting that risk could be actually a 19-fold increase. And so I, I really, I don't, I had been aware of some of the work of, you know, Dr. Weston Price and some of the work of epigenetics, more sort of like modern science, looking at um, how the environment uh, that we live in and including the environment in utero sh sh uh, shapes our later health. And that really brought it full circle to me, for me, because I was like, whoa, this is something where some oftentimes relatively minor shifts in nutrition bring about much better controlled blood sugar and we can just slash that risk in half or just cut it completely. I mean, if you have 
are able to maintain normal blood sugar in pregnancy, it's essentially, it doesn't matter if you have a diagnosis of gestational diabetes or not, like your risk is nil. So I'm kind of going around about in a long story, but th this is what really lit the fire um, in me to work on prenatal nutrition. Um, when I worked clinically, I was able to see how the guidelines, which ironically I had worked on, didn't work very well in practice. And that's what ultimately led me to look into alternatives to the conventional nutrition advice, um, write my first book, Real Food for Gestational Diabetes, and really focus on how were our prenatal nutrition guidelines set? Where are the gaps from where they are in the current research? How can we do better? Really, how can we set mothers and babies up for success, um, starting in utero and then arguably start, starting preconception as well? Um, so that's, that's why Real Food for Gestational Diabetes and my other book, Real Food for Pregnancy, exist. It's just, let's give people the information to make more informed decisions about how they care for their health and what they eat during pregnancy and postpartum. So we could just make this whole transition into pregnancy and motherhood way easier. I love that. I think that's so awesome. And I love how in the books, like I recommend real food uh, for pregnancy for patients all the time, you really break down the science, which I enjoy. You know, a lot of people can write a book about their opinion on nutrition, but you really use the evidence in a digestible way for people to see like, no, this is really what you need and what's important to prioritize and the potential long-term effects, which I think is so important. Thank you for that. Yeah, I, I like to focus on the evidence as much as possible. And of course, because I am challenging the guidelines, I mean, it, the onus is on me to provide the evidence to back up what I'm saying. There's enough things on the internet, enough people on the internet randomly spouting opinions with right. absolutely no evidence base behind them, including people who are just, you know, regurgitating what the guidelines say without looking at, in a lot of cases, the poor evidence that was used to even create the guidelines right. in the first place, right? right. So, so, you know, true. I, I kind of had to do the work of putting in um, lots and lots of time to research and, and all the work to cite almost every sentence I feel like has a citation. Um, <laughs> because, <laughs> I mean, there's over 900 citations in that book. So it's like, wow. I, I had to put it all in there because I know I knew I was going to be, you know, under fire on this and yes. there'd be a lot of questions. So, hey, yes. if you want to know why I came to this conclusion, here is the study or these studies that you can read. And look it up yourself and, and see what you think. You might come yep. to a different conclusion, but I, I'm just giving you the information and my best interpretation of, of the science to date. Totally. Absolutely. Awesome. So many people, the average person wouldn't even know where to start to begin to like interpret and understand a research article, you know? So I think it's so important what you're doing and it's not just for practitioners or doctors, but like an average person could read that and get really well informed. So it's great. Thank you. So I'd love to start with talking about preconception, a woman that is thinking about getting pregnant or not pregnant yet, but wants to, you know, address fertility as a whole and like being the healthiest possible. What are some of the most important things you can do nutrition wise to prepare yourself for a healthy pregnancy? 
Yeah. So, uh, you know, a lot of the stuff that you could do preconception is really the same as what you can do during pregnancy and what you can continue to do postpartum. Um, I like to say real food is real food. So although I tend to focus on the evidence specific to pregnancy, all of the things essentially that you're doing in pregnancy to um, ensure you're eating enough micronutrients, ensure you're eating, you know, a ratio of fat, carbohydrates, and protein that works for your body, ensuring that your blood sugar is well balanced, ensuring you're getting enough quality sleep, that certain nutrient levels are optimized. I mean, all of that stuff also comes into play preconception. And some would argue that it's even more important to focus on that preconception so that you're coming into pregnancy mm -hmm. with you know, good hormonal balance, um, you know, thyroid hormones where they should be um, weight in a healthy place for your body, et cetera, et cetera. So some of the things I think are most important um, is especially in the three months or so leading up to pregnancy to really focus on um, honing in on your nutrition. And for me, what, what I like to work on, because people can get really like neurotic about nutrition, is um, I like to focus on the micronutrients because if you just focus on getting some specific nutrient dense foods incorporated into your diet. It's kind of like a two birds with one stone situation. So you say you're incorporating more eggs. That's an example of a food that is really highly nutrient dense, provides a lot of nutrition that's important, especially in early pregnancy for the development of the embryo and prevention of neural tube defects. It has choline, it has folate, it has vitamin B12, it has DHA. It has a lot of good stuff in it. Um, just by incorporating eggs into your breakfast, for example, in lieu of something like cereal, here you're getting a whole bunch of micronutrients. You're getting better balanced blood sugar, which ultimately is, is very helpful for when it comes to fertility. Um, you're getting um, more sustained energy and probably less cravings for junk food later in the day. A lot of times what you have for breakfast really sets the stage for your hormonal and blood sugar balance all the way through the day and carries into the next day, right? So something as simple as switching out breakfast to something more nutrient dense fills a, like fills a void <laughs> that might not you might not have thought about. Um, I would also say that um, as much as you can focus on normalizing your menstrual cycle preconception, that's really going to help um, set the stage for a healthy pregnancy. Um, I have a research brief on this on my um, Instagram page that goes through some research on this. But essentially, until the placenta is formed and you have like a, a, a direct blood supply from mom to baby is essentially what, what you do with a placenta, um, that's like right. 10, 12-ish weeks. Um, until that time, the embryo is actually being um, nourished by the endometrium and by mm. these glands that are within the endometrium. The endometrium is the lining of the uterus that builds up every month when you have your cycle, right? Mm -hmm. So if you have like really scarce periods with not a lot of blood, that could be a sign that you're not building up a sufficiently thick nutrient rich mm -hmm. endometrium to allow that egg to implant properly, to allow the placenta to um, implant properly as well and develop properly. And that's really like the nutrition supply for very, very, very early pregnancy. And so this is why like nutrient stores preconception matter. This is why your, your menstrual cycle preconception matter. 
Um, there's a lot to consider. And, and this is just, it, I mean, at the heart of it, you can make it really complex, but at the heart of it, this is just a sign of like, you are healthy and have vitality, like a normal menstrual cycle, a, right. a diet that includes some nutrient dense foods, focusing on basic lifestyle factors like sleep and sunlight and stress reduction, like all of those things work together for hormonal balance and improving fertility. Oh, that's awesome. I know that we love looking, especially in our patients, like using the menstrual cycle almost as like a major vital sign of how healthy a female is. So I think it's perfect to bring that up. How do you feel about prenatals and what are your recommendations there usually? In terms of prenatal vitamins? Yeah, prenatal vitamins. Yeah. So I, it's kind of a, a controversial topic. You have some people who um, are on like opposite extremes. So you have the like, you must take a prenatal every single day, otherwise it's dangerous. And then you have the, no, they're fake, they're made in a lab, you can get everything through food. And I'm, I'm kind of somewhere in the middle, um, to be honest. I think with, with this like deeper understanding that I've gleaned of prenatal nutrition over the years, I, I'm ultimately a fan of prenatal vitamins um, because so many people really are not eating consistently right. a nutrient-dense diet enough to meet all of their nutrient needs from food alone. And that particularly comes into play when you're at specific stages of pregnancy where you might have nausea or food aversions or other things where your body just like doesn't want certain foods. Um, and I know I can relate to that because with both of my pregnancies, there were periods of time where it's just like the thought of eating fish was so off-putting or the thought of eating green leafy vegetables. It's like, it's easy to come up with a sample meal plan from your head and be like, oh yeah, every day of pregnancy, I'm going to have my like <laughs> eggs and I'll have my salmon and kale right. salad and right. I'll have, and then like real life hits and you're like, crap. Um, right. I can't, I literally can't eat that today. And so right. I do think there is definitely a place for filling in some of those gaps with a prenatal vitamin, but understanding that you're viewing it as an insurance policy and not a replacement mm. for eating well, because those stages come and go. Things ebb and flow throughout pregnancy and food aversions come and go. And, and ultimately, especially us usually in like the latter half of pregnancy, um, a lot of people are able to to tolerate a much wider variety of foods without much issue. Mm -hmm. um, but I do think it's helpful in that it does fill in a lot of gaps nutritionally for people, um, particularly, you know, when the diet is more limited, maybe that's because of allergies, maybe it's um, food intolerances, personal preference, aversions, whatnot. Um, and especially when people are not um, consuming an omnivorous diet. So people who are vegetarian or vegan, I think it becomes even more important that you have yeah. a consistent source of some of the nutrients that can be lacking like vitamin b12 for example so i do like them um but i am i'm you know with caution and i'm a bit critical about a lot of the ones in the market because you can really call anything a prenatal vitamin um there's no like standard of you must include xyz at xyz amount which really surprises people so like a one a day prenatal that you get at a drugstore uh, I actually think you'd be better off not taking a prenatal vitamin, um, which I think is would be a shocking statement for some people, maybe unless you're like vegan and you need the B12 and that's the only place you're getting it. But 
really, those are like using such like crappy forms of nutrients. Um, There's a bunch of yucky fillers in there that are not healthy for you. The quantity of nutrients in a one a day is like dismal. I mean, you can fit in enough B vitamins probably because those are really tiny and fit in a capsule, but they've probably left out adequate amounts of vitamin D. They've probably left out choline entirely. There's probably no iodine in it. There's probably almost no minerals in it. Um, And they're just putting in, you know, pixie dust quantities of nutrients and calling it a prenatal when it's really not going to be doing that much for you. Right. Absolutely. Totally. And I'm so glad you spoke to that because I think even um, good quality, high grade professional prenatals, that's where I feel like um, your book or working with a holistic practitioner that gets it is so important because I mean, even in great ones, they usually don't have much D. They don't have omegas. Like there are still other supplements you should be additionally taking outside of prenatal. And I think that's a big misconception is, oh, I'm thinking about conceiving or I'm pregnant. I just need to take a prenatal. That's it. Yeah. I know. And that's a really great point. (laughs) (laughs) There's so much more to consider than just a prenatal. It's like, yes, get a high quality prenatal, but for example, I only know one on the market that has adequate amounts of vitamin D and an evidence-based do- dosage that yeah. we know from randomized controlled trials is going to prevent vitamin D deficiency in like 80% of mothers, um, which by the way, that means that still 20% of moms would need more than that dosage, yeah. right? But yeah. most prenatals contain nowhere near enough vitamin D. Um, so many of them contain iron when a lot of people don't need the iron supplementation or it's in a form that's very poorly absorbed and causes mm-hmm. constipation, nausea, and a whole gamut of symptoms where like yeah. most people who quit taking a prenatal or an iron supplement do it because of side effects. And totally. nine times out of 10, it's because it has a shitty form of iron in it. That, like, <laughs> nobody can absorb and it's right. like just, just a total yes. wreck on your digestive system. So yeah. Yeah, there's, there's a lot to consider. And I like what you said about the insurance policy too. That's so great. Cause I tell this story in a previous podcast episode we did about um, my experience with pregnancy, but I like your book was my Bible and I had my whole plan laid out and then I got pregnant and like literally couldn't eat anything for four months except my yeah. gluten-free cereal. So I was yeah. like, you know what? Thank goodness for like high quality supplementation because- yes. I thought I was going to basically be keto and pregnant and like, there was no way. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Funny story about that. I was um, speaking at at, uh, a conference, low carb Denver a couple years ago and specifically on low carb and pregnancy, because a lot of people look to me as like the expert on low carb and pregnancy. Yeah. And then are like shocked that I'm not promoting what would be at least outside of pregnancy, a ketogenic diet essentially um but people don't really again this is sort of like the idea of going into it with like this is the perfect meal plan and you're gonna eat exactly this every day and you're pregnant you're gonna be so motivated which completely ignores the fact that your body has its own plans right and so especially early pregnancy people do not like eating keto is probably impossible for like 95 percent of pregnant women i do know Uh some people pull it off but yeah. your body wants more carbs, at yeah. least at that time period. Right. <laughs> um, and so it's really, an, you know, sure, I guess you could do it. And there are situations where it, it makes sense. Um, but for the vast majority of people, it's not going to be 
feasible and yeah. and that's also okay by the yes. way right yeah. and, um, <laughs> okay, like, if there's a need to reduce carbohydrates long, right? at a later time in pregnancy you always can but we have to be thinking you know in that early phase of pregnancy the embryo is being nourished by your endometrium anyways right right so like you're relying on your nutrient stores anyways which is why it comes back to that can you prepare yourself preconception so that when the nausea does hit because in 90 percent of women it will hit at varying levels of severity but it's likely going to happen right. can you have some peace of mind that this is a physiologically normal thing that you just have to kind of like grit and get through and you'll be okay because you have nutrient stores that you can rely on. And it maybe is even a good sign that there's nausea because it means that all these hormonal things in pregnancy are happening just as the way they're planned to happen. Like, right. you know, when you're in that phase, I'm always reminding people, you know, if you have my book, like only read the nausea and food aversion section in chapter seven until it passes. And then you like, you can return to all the good stuff right. later. Totally. It'll likely decline by like, you know, 13, 14, 15, 16 or so weeks, you know, decline might not go away entirely, but um, it can feel really upsetting when you're in that phase and you're like, crap, I'm ruining this, you know, <laughs> totally. <laughs> totally. for sure. Oh my gosh, that's awesome. And now talking also about fertility, what would your, would your suggestions change at all if someone was struggling to conceive? Well, I think preconception fertility wise you you just have a lot more wiggle room um in making changes right so there could be you know i don't want to like throw keto under the bus <laughs> as i just kind of did with pregnancy because it's not entirely my stance just that you have um you can have more carbs and it's okay i guess is what i wanted to emphasize right. but preconception um say you're a person who is dealing with PCOS, which is very clearly an insulin resistance issue, and there's a significant amount of a weight that you need to lose. Um, you know, we're talking like, you know, weight in like the 200s plus um, pounds, then something like a ketogenic diet and something where you're incorporating intermittent fasting to improve your insulin resistance and assist with weight loss, that might make sense, not necessarily long-term or forever, for, but for a period of time in a given specific clinical situation where it's you know indicated by your functional medicine practitioner and everything else, that might make sense. Whereas I don't necessarily recommend a strict ketogenic diet and I don't recommend intermittent fasting during pregnancy specifically, mm -hmm. right? So I think there certainly can be differences there. Um, I think preconception, you have much more control over your food intake because you're not dealing with pregnancy-induced nausea and food aversions. So the idea of incorporating liver into your diet probably won't make you as likely to hurl <laughs> as it might in pregnancy if that's the first time you've considered eating something like that or oysters or fish or seafood, some of these other like really nutrient dense foods as well. So yeah, I think there's some wiggle room. I think there's also, you know, if you're using herbs as part of your protocol for health, I mean, you don't have restrictions necessarily preconception, but during pregnancy, the research on a lot of herbs is really limited. So you might 
not want to be taking, say, like berberine, that's something you might use for insulin resistance, like that's generally contraindicated in pregnancy. Mm -hmm. So you just, you know, have more wiggle room with a lot of interventions preconception than you might in pregnancy, where given that we don't have research on every single thing, you have to sort of take a risk benefit approach to a lot of these interventions that um, might not, might be questionable. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, that makes sense. And we've kind of gone into this piece a little bit um, once you're pregnant, how diet and nutrition, um, your regimen will shift a little bit. But if there's any other pieces you wanted to recommend or um, put a little more attention on, just like once you find out you're pregnant, sort of what things you're trying to shift, given, of course, that um, your <laughs> your body can tolerate it. Yeah. I mean, I, I would probably be I'm real, so I'm really big on, on, on listening to your body and especially in pregnancy. I mean, things can shift like week to week, day to day, hour to hour sometimes, especially if you're in like that sticky situation of nausea where you're like, Oh God, I could never touch eggs. And then like two hours later, you're like, you know, a scrambled egg sounds kind of good, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I would say, you know, come into it with a general understanding of, what foods provide a lot of the nutrients that your body needs come into it with a general understanding of, um, I know I'm more energized when I have certain combinations of foods. So for example, I'm really big on people understanding how carbohydrates, fat and protein impact their blood sugar. Cause even if you don't have any blood sugar issues whatsoever, um, just purely from like a maintaining your energy standpoint, um, not having what I call naked carbs. So carbs by themselves without any source of fat and protein is one of like the simplest, most universal things that applies to every human being. Um, like including my toddler, you know, I'm like, okay, well, if you have that banana by yourself, by itself, it's, you're probably going to be hungry pretty soon. So do you want to have it alongside some almond butter or some peanut butter? Or do you want to have an egg for breakfast plus a banana? I mean, mm-hmm. it'll give you more energy. Like these basic principles apply to everyone. So when you actually, you know, get pregnant and hopefully there's sort of a baseline of understanding of nutrition, you can kind of mitigate some of the icky phases. So like, okay, I'm super nauseous. I know that right now my body only wants, I don't know, I can only eat a banana. I'll use the banana example. Fine. I know I'm going to be starving really soon after that. And every time I get starving, then my nausea gets worse. It's where the mindful eating comes in, right? Paying attention to how food and all these other things happening in your life are impacting how you feel. Okay. So I'll take a couple bites of banana and then I'll like have a couple almonds because that'll give, give me like a little more staying power. Mm-hmm. Got your carbs first, settled your stomach. Now you got a little bit of fat and protein, even if, if it's like three almonds, it still makes a difference. Mm-hmm. Um, that kind of like limps you along <laughs> through the day, through that phase until you can make it to the next time that you're able to eat something. And then you kind of go through it again. Okay, like what can I eat that's not going to make me hurl? What can I eat that's going to give me a little more consistent energy, aka fat and protein, that will hopefully not make me hurl, Mm -hmm. and sort of like go through that process again and again. And I mean, I'm I'm bringing it down to this baseline level because when you're you're in that phase, that's really that's how you get through it. Mm -hmm. It's like hour by hour. Totally. 
That's great tips. And now getting into pregnancy, what are some of those common, the most common nutrients that women are low on or lacking? So it depends on the person and it depends on what type of diet that they have been eating long-term. But I would say as a whole, we know choline, for example, is a nutrient that a lot of people aren't eating enough of, and most people have never even heard of it. So it is a B vitamin-like compound, um, somewhat similar in its functions to what folate does in your body, but it is different. It's a different nutrient. Um, and it is something that I think the latest estimate I saw was 94% of pregnant women are not consuming enough choline. Wow. And it's very important for the prevention of neural tube defects, arguably just as important, if not more so than folate, which is what everybody else is focusing on. Um, and it's important for the development of the placenta, the transfer of nutrients across the placenta, fetal brain development, um, maintenance of like healthy liver function as well, cognitive function in mother as well. So choline is something that you find in the highest quantities in egg yolks, which is why I'm such a big fan of eggs for people who eat them. Um, so that's one, choline. Um, another one that's pretty commonly lacking is vitamin B12, um, particularly people who aren't consuming much food of animal origin. So, you know, you get lots of vitamin B12 in, in animal products and meat, um, but especially organ meat. So like liver, heart, whatnot. Um, that has like 200 times more B12 than a similar quantity of muscle meats. You also get it in seafood. So for people who don't like to eat meat, but do consume seafood, you find really, really high quantities of B12 in um, shellfish, especially the bivalves like uh, oysters, clams, mussels. So if you like those, um, you know, they do have them like canned. So it's a really easy thing to have right off the shelf. I mean, they are off the charts in B12 as well as iron and zinc and selenium, some other nutrients that also tend to be um, lacking in the diet. So those would be some, some major ones to consider. Uh, another one would be vitamin D. And that's a, a unique nutrient because it's something that we do not primarily get from food. You get some from food, but you get most of your vitamin D actually from the sun, from sun exposure without sunscreen or clothing or other things blocking as a barrier between your skin and the sun um, or supplements. And I think it, if you look at the data on vitamin D deficiency in pregnancy, I mean, it's really high across the board, but it is higher in people who live further from the equator because you don't have as much opportunity for the um, sun exposure, the right wavelengths to make vitamin D year round. So you're looking at a good almost half the year where you can't make vitamin D from the sun, let alone it's cold, right? So you're not going to like go out in the snow naked and like sunbathe. Right. Um, right. Yeah. But, uh, and also people who have darker skin tones, you have more melanin in your skin and it requires longer amounts of time in the sun to make the same amount of vitamin D as somebody who um, has pale skin. So Vitamin D is, is really important. The, the data is showing we need probably eight to 10 times more than what the current RDA says we need. So it is something that for most people, unless you're living you know, in an equatorial place and sunbathing without sunscreen often, you probably want to consider supplementing with. 
That's awesome. I love how much you've talked about choline too, because that isn't something that's talked about a lot. So talks about it. It's yeah, it's up. yeah. So it's changed a lot of how I help patients who are doing fertility and who are pregnant. It's like we need choline. Everyone's like, "What's that?" Because it is. It's just never yep. talked about. I know. I was speaking at a conference. I think it was 2013, 2012, a while ago, and this was before people were talking about choline very much at all outside of like the academics who study it. And I was at a conference speaking on pregnancy health to healthcare providers who work in prenatal care. Okay. So it's like dietitians, mostly nurses, doctors, PAs, um, and yeah, NPs anyways. So conventional healthcare people generally, but I, I had a slide on choline because I was, I was starting to, you know, poke at how the guidelines are like not good, but doing so in a conventional um, sort of setting. And because there's still all this fear about, you know, don't eat too much cholesterol in pregnancy. So like people are throwing out egg yolks and doing just idiotic things. And so I had a slide on choline and I had people raise their hand and tell me um, how, you know, are you familiar with the nutrient choline and its role in prenatal health? And like, 10 people in the audience, maybe, of a group of like 300 health professionals who specifically work in prenatal care, maybe 10 raise their hands. I can guarantee you all of those were dietitians, by the way, but people are not familiar with this. I mean, this is why I'm just, I'm always talking about it (laughs) because it's so important. Team Colleen. Yeah, we're, we're here for it. (laughs) Um, let's shift gears a little bit and talk, um, about nutrition during labor. So what can moms do who are in the hospital and stuck with liquids or, you know, moms who are even, you know, doing more like a birth center, like what are some good tips for labor? Yeah. So first off, I think a lot of these rules are ridiculous. Um, So I'll just state that prenatal care, maternity care, birth care needs a complete overhaul. And I'll I'll stop my rant there. Um, I will also say that there's a lot of people who I think get overly concerned about what they're going to eat during labor um, when really, I mean, yes, I think it's something that you can, you can plan and think about. And I I certainly did as well. Um, But your body might have other plans. So you can come up with like this plan for, you know, what you're going to eat or drink or whatever, and like make the the homemade labor aid, you know, the, the natural version of Gatorade or have coconut water, have like liquids and and electrolytes, some source of liquids and electrolytes there. Um, Yes, do that. But your body might not let you eat or drink much during labor at all. Um, So keep that in mind. You can do all the best planning and it might not work out. Um, But I will say, you know, when you're in labor, you're kind of in like a, you're in another world, you know, you're kind of in this, this trance state it's very strange. It's hard to explain to people who have not experienced um, labor, especially like an an unmedicated labor, but your brain is like in a different world. And, you know, if you need energy, I I think you just eat 
or drink whatever your body will let you eat or drink at that time and don't worry too much. Mm-hmm. I was somebody who could not really eat during labor. Um, so I did have my, you know, water, my like homemade labor aid. I had um, coconut water as an option. I had liquids there available, but I was somebody who couldn't really eat solid foods during labor. And I learned my lesson the first time. So the second time around, I made sure that I was eating by the time that like labor started. I was like, oh, I better eat something because I'm probably not going to be able to eat. And that food came up a couple hours later as it did in right. my first labor. I couldn't keep anything down. Right. Um, but I think if you can go into labor with, you know, a belly full of food, you're better off at least, even if it's going to come up, at least you've absorbed some of it before it comes back up. But I think really thinking about simple things. So if, you know, liquids are the only thing that's allowed and you're going to comply with that rule because some people don't comply with that rule, by the way. So, you know, you do you informed consents really. The concern is aspiration if you're going to be put under for an emergency C-section. Okay. So that's really the only concern with eating in labor. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, you can have things like simple snacks around fruit, Lara bars, whatever that's portable. You could um, have your labor aid, your, your even like just watered down juice with a little salt added to it. It's like essentially all that, that you need for your electrolytes, for your energy. You could have honey sticks, Um, Really, it's things that will give you like a simple, quick burst of energy, but you're probably not going to be in a place. And again, it depends person to person because every labor experience is different, but most people are not in a place where they're able to eat a large quantity of solid foods, especially like heavier fatty protein kind of foods during labor. So just keep it simple with light snacks. Don't worry about the no naked carbs rule. If you want to call it a rule, just whatever you can keep down, whatever sounds good, whatever is going to give you a quick boost of energy and keep you hydrated. Right. Well, it's like if at any time when you need like simple carbs like that is probably during labor, during a huge athletic. (laughs) Oh yeah. You're going to have no problem burning off a banana. Yeah. (laughs) Absolutely. All right. So now past pregnancy postpartum what nutrition changes would you recommend? So with postpartum, you're probably going to be very hungry, hungrier than you were during pregnancy because you've just gone through birth, which can go many different directions. Um, So if you had a natural labor, you probably had somewhat of a marathon. If you had a C-section, you had major abdominal surgery if you had natural labor followed by a c-section or a traumatic birth where there had to be you know where there was tears or an episiotomy or something like that now you have like both combined like any way you look at it it is a big energy and nutrient expenditure for your body no matter how the birth went there is a significant amount of blood loss that's just normal part of birth and then you continue to bleed postpartum Um, So you want to be thinking about replenishing your iron stores. You want to be thinking about your um, replenishing fluids and electrolytes, especially early on, you know, that when everything is swollen and you're healing, um, that first bowel movement is like very scary for a lot of people. So you really do want to stay well hydrated. So that's an easy to pass, doesn't require a lot of pushing because you've already done plenty of pushing (laughs) during birth. Um, you want to be thinking about foods that'll be really 
um, energizing and, and filling. Um, so when you look at what a lot of postpartum cultures um, encourage or what a lot of traditional cultures encourage for postpartum is foods that are warming, easy to digest, um, high protein, high fat, they're not necessarily low carb either. There's a lot of well-cooked starches that are parts of traditional um, cultures for postpartum foods. But you're really looking at things that are gonna like sustain you, nourish you, be easy to digest, um, provide a lot of nutrients important for healing, especially if there's any tears or incisions, surgical wounds that need to heal. You wanna be thinking you know, collagen, iron, zinc, vitamin A, vitamin C, and a lot of those things, um, maybe with the exception of vitamin C, you're going to be finding in higher amounts in animal foods or only in animal foods. So meat, liver, eggs, fish, seafood, those are all really nutrient-dense things to incorporate amidst everything else you're already eating in your diet. It's not that you're solely eating those foods, um, but those really help speed along the healing process, keep you energized, um, you know, keep your, your, this bottomless pit um, filled because if you're nursing, you know, you're now burning an extra 500 calories a day, just making breast milk, your sleep's interrupted, everything's all through a loop and mm -hmm. you need energy and nutrients to get through that phase. So yeah, I mean, it's a lot of the stuff you do in pregnancy and then just like kicked up a notch, um, eat a lot more food <laughs> and eat a lot more of your nutrient dense foods. Usually all the food aversions are like completely gone. You'll eat whatever postpartum. So um, make those bites count. Do like, you know, meatloaf with hidden liver in it, have fish and seafood, um, have eggs for breakfast, have all your leafy green vegetables, um, have snacks nearby while you're nursing that are high calorie, high energy foods, you know? Yeah, that's awesome. And if you're planning to nurse, are there some additional food or supplements that can help with milk supply? So with milk supply, it's really a matter of just eating enough and drinking enough first and foremost. So I think people get really um, distracted by the idea that you need to eat certain things or avoid certain things in order to make enough milk. And there are certain foods that are considered galactagogues, things that help enhance milk supply, but they are not required to make sufficient breast milk. Um, I don't, I didn't go out of my way to eat any particular galactagogues and have nursed both kids. It's really a matter of getting enough energy and enough fluids in, you know, energy in, energy out, fluids in, fluids out. I'd add electrolytes to that list as well, because it's not just about getting enough water. You need enough sodium and other minerals in there as well, because um, you're excreting a lot of electrolytes also in your breast milk. What I would say, though, is that there's, there's, nursing is there's so much nuance to it, um, especially early on. And a lot of it is really a matter of supply and demand. Is baby getting to the breast often enough? Are they latching well? Are they transferring milk well? Which you can often tell in terms of them getting enough milk by how many wet and poopy diapers they're having per day and, and their weight gain essentially and just other cues from the baby. But I think working with a lactation consultant um, especially like an IBCLC who tend to be really well trained, 
they'll, they'll help you with like the actual hands-on nursing part of it. And as far as the food part, it's just eating enough, drinking enough. Now you can get into nuance. I have a whole 90 plus minute presentation on the nutrient transfer into breast milk and how maternal intake can influence the nutrient content of breast milk, because there are a lot of micronutrients where maternal intake absolutely influences the amount of that vitamin or nutrient in the milk. Choline is an example. B12 is an example. DHA is an example. Um, but that's to like the fine tuning stage. And mm -hmm. really, if you're focusing on everything you did during your pregnancy, following the real food for pregnancy guidelines, and now you're just eating enough of those foods and even more of them, that part takes care of itself, <laughs> right? In terms of producing enough milk, it's just like, eat enough food, hopefully it's nutrient dense, because then you'll, you know, the micronutrient part will be done well, and keep baby at the breast often enough transferring milk enough that your body keeps producing the milk. Yes. Yeah, it makes total so, sense. Yeah. And now what are some resources? Obviously, we will link to your lovely books and, and your information. But are there any other either books or online resources you love for um, pregnancy and postpartum nutrition? Well, I mean, I don't have like a separate book to recommend other than my own on, on pregnancy and postpartum nutrition. Um, I will say like the last chapter of Real Food for Pregnancy is all about postpartum. Mm -hmm. And that was uh, very intentional because I started writing that when my son was 10 months old, my firstborn. Um, so I was in the midst of postpartum recovery still because it, it takes a while. It's not just like a couple months and you're good. There's like the short term and then the long term. Mm -hmm. um, but for people who want additional resources on like additional information on anything that's covered in the book, I do have like continuing education webinars, which are generally geared towards professionals, but everybody is welcome um, over at the Women's Health Nutrition Academy, which is whnacademy.com. So I have one on postpartum recovery and nutrient repletion. I have the breastfeeding nutrient transfer into breast milk one. I have one on general pregnancy nutrition, one on gestational diabetes, one all about vitamin D in pregnancy. Right. Um, and it, there's many more from my colleagues as well. So I'd recommend checking those out. Um, as far as preconception though, I can definitely give a recommendation on the book, The Fifth Vital Sign by Lisa Hendrickson Jack. And really our, our nutrition information is very much aligned, but it's all about when you talked about how the menstrual cycle is kind of like a vital sign. I mean, that's what inspired the title of her book. That's exactly what it's about. So for people who want to improve their menstrual cycle and do essentially, I mean, improving your menstrual cycle is preconception prep, by the way. Everything you need to do to improve your menstrual cycle is all the things that are improving your fertility and your chances of, of getting pregnant and carrying a viable pregnancy to term. Um, so her book is really uh, excellent and she has a podcast as well. That's, that's great. So Lisa Hendrickson Jack's uh, resources are really, really good. Cool. That's awesome. So how can our listeners stay in touch and follow you? Are you active anywhere? <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, as of late with, you know, no childcare, uh, I'm working as much as I can, <laughs> but you know, I have a, 
a nine month old and a four year old. And so it's pretty challenging. Um, you can find me though on my website, lilynicholsrdn.com. I have, you know, I've been blogging for almost a decade. So there's over 250 articles on there free for the taking. The ones that are more recent tend to be um, much more in depth. So there's posts on, you know, feeding babies. There's posts on postpartum recovery with like 50 plus recipes that I link out to. There's posts on postpartum anemia. And I mean, you name the topic, use the search bar. There's, there's a lot on the website. I also give away the first chapter of Real Food for Pregnancy for free on there. So if you want to just get a taste for it, um, that'll, that'll explain a lot, um, a lot of the backstory of what we're talking about today. And then as far as social media wise, I am most active on Instagram, which is not entirely all that active these days, but of the social media platforms, that's where you'll find me the most. Um, I do try to provide what I call research briefs, which is just short little snippets about a, a recent research study that I've read that relates somehow to fertility, pregnancy, postpartum, breastfeeding, nutrition. Um, so a lot of people like following me there so they can get those research briefs and just see what I'm eating. And yeah. That's awesome. Cool. This was great. Lily, thank you so much. Your information is, is I feel like so important. And I, it's like, I'm always like when women find out they're pregnant or thinking about conceiving soon, you're always at the top of my list of, of like different resources to go check out. So we really appreciate and love your work. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. And it was, it was my pleasure. Totally. Thank you so much. The statements in this podcast have not been evaluated by the FDA. Information provided here and products recommended or sold on coffeewiththedocs.com and or our podcast are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. The information provided by the site and or by this podcast is not a substitute for a face-to-face -face consultation with your physician and should not be construed as medical advice of any sort. By using any of this information or reading it, you are accepting responsibility for your own health and health decisions and expressly release Dr. Nicole Huffman and Dr. Abby Kramer and its partners and guests from any and all liability whatsoever, including that arising from negligence.